everyone with an interest in NASH or more broadly fatty liver disease, surfs up. Season 2, episode 41 of Surfing the NASH Tsunami starts now. This week on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. I just came from a diabetes clinic. Two of the patients that I checked out both had elevated liver enzymes. One since 2011. We did a fiber scanning clinic and both have readings in the range of cirrhosis. Could have been probably diagnosed years ago. Every single doctor that you talk to, Ken and I included, may not change our practice based on one double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial, but we dang sure will based on one single anecdotal experience. Lazarus had this really interesting thought last week. It forgets cirrhosis. Any patient picked up an F2 or F3 for the first time, that should be called a late diagnosis. It was the first key performance indicator I had heard that you could measure simply. Roger, I've heard you before say the liver is a erotic danger field of our organs, and, uh, and that that is true. We just need to keep hammering away at those people who come in contact with people who might be at risk for liver disease. A global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guests, hepatology researchers and key opinion leaders Professor Kenneth Cousy, patient and patient advocate Anthony Villiotti of Nash Knowledge, and Global Liver Institute Director of Global Policy Andrew Scott as they discuss the recent multidisciplinary call to action for the coming Nash epidemic this week on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. So we are officially into August. Sadly, in the U.S., COVID seems to be officially back and spiking in certain parts of the country. So everybody that I'm talking to is trying to figure out exactly where they want to go to the beach and which parts of summer they want to celebrate and how, which is always interesting. My friends in the rest of the world tell me that they're celebrating because they feel like they're opened up for the first time in a while. My Canadian friends were giving me grief yesterday that they have now officially passed Israel and the U.S. and all of Europe in terms of most vaccinated country in the world. And this is all I'm going to say about COVID this week because we have lots else to talk about. I'm really excited about this episode in the same sense I was last week. Last week, Jeff Lazarus came on and talked about an initiative that he's been spearheading and taking a look at comprehensive care models. And for those who heard it, and Stephen, I know those of us who are on it, thought it was one of the really informative sessions we've had recently. This week, we're doing a slightly different variant of the same thing. We have um, Ken Cousy with us. Hey, Ken, welcome back. How are you? Thank you for having me. Uh, Pleasure. And Ken's going to be talking about an initiative that he's been spearheading, which is a multidisciplinary initiative to look at how do we get ready for the NASH pandemic. That's roughly the title of the paper in question. Stephen, uh, who's one of the co-authors, is with us. Hey, Stephen, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for coming back. Uh, We don't have Louise. She had a family issue and backed out at the last minute. And I don't think it's possible to fill Louise's shoes with any one person unless Donna Cryer is available. So instead, we filled her shoes with two, both of whom you know, Andrew Scott, the Director of Global Policy at Global Liver Institute. Andrew, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. And Tony Villiotti, the president, I guess still the president, right, of National Knowledge? Or are you the chairman and Gene is the president now? Yeah, still president. I'm doing well. Thank you. With all that, why don't we just get started? Because Ken has to be off in an hour and... 
and he's our center of attention today. So with that, let me just go around the table. We'll do the typical groundbreaker. We usually do one good thing that's happened in the last week. Please make sure to mention one thing that's personal. And if you have a professional to add to it, uh, that's great as well. Brave One, go first. I'm happy to start. First, professional. Last week for us at Global Liver Institute, we had a in-person retreat, which is exciting for our organization, obviously, uh, with everyone being vaccinated, getting COVID tested ahead of time. But our team has expanded so rapidly over the last year. It's been exciting to be a part of, but it was great to finally get everyone together in person, get the team bonding going, and really kind of discuss how we can continue blazing a path forward for, for patient advocacy, especially in, in liver health. So that was very exciting. And then on a personal note, I'm in California at the moment, visiting family, which is always great and great to kind of work from California for a little bit, which is a perk of virtual world at the moment. I'm taking advantage of it. Well, someone has to top that. You realize that, don't you? Who wants to go next? I'll go. On a personal level, last week I was able to take my grandson to his first Major League Baseball game. As a baseball fan, that, that was exciting for me. You know, on a uh, professional level, we're continuing to work on developing resources about the linkage between nutrition and a healthy liver, as well as finding more ways to reach people who don't know about this disease. We've begun using TikTok, using my granddaughter as an unpaid consultant, and we posted something on there that had over 54,000 views. Tony, that's our second TikTok reference in three weeks. Donna was talking about how her team, Andrew, is trying to get her to go on TikTok, and Andrew's not. Have you guys succeeded in doing that yet, or are we still waiting for, for that to bear fruit? That is incoming, but as our social media team continues to, to grow our, our efforts, it's only natural we'll get in the TikTok space. And as Tony mentioned, I mean, when we look at, at pediatric NASH and things like that, it's important to kind of have as many pathways to reach people as possible. And, and if TikTok is all the rage for the younger generation, we got to make sure we're utilizing it. Excellent. Okay, Ken or Steven, go ahead. On a personal level, I helped move my son that's a junior in college to his new home with three friends. So we worked 12 hours lifting furniture and things. So that was that was fun and driving a U-Haul, but he's he's doing well. And on a professional level, well, this call to action in the last days has been important. And I just learned yesterday that we actually this morning, the clinical care pathway that complements this, and Steve knows because he worked on this too, approved in gastroenterology. So now we have both articles together to give a comprehensive view of this to, to the field. So Ken, we'll have to have a date to have you back and talk about that one after it comes out. That'll be fantastic. Steven? I'm going to have to put a shameless plug in for my uh, junior at Texas A&M, who's a TikTok influencer. <laughs> so he's, he's got about 300,000 followers and uh, routinely gets about a quarter of a million hits for any TikTok. So GLI or, or Tony, you guys need need uh, somebody to create a video. He's he's pretty darn good at, at those videos. So I'm sure he'd be willing to, to do one pro bono for you guys. And as far as personal highlight, I'm in the middle of getting both of my kids organized to go back to college. Well, my son back to Texas A&M, who'll be a junior with Ken's son. And although he, you didn't mention where he's going, Ken, and I don't remember. He's not going too far. He's staying at UF here. So he's, ah, he's okay. in his second year of engineering. I couldn't get any doctor, you know. That's okay. Yeah, me either. So my son is industrial distribution engineer. But at least he's staying in the Southeastern Conference, as my son is as well. Now, my daughter's a different story. We're moving her to Southern Methodist University in two weeks. So we're, you know, it's a little bit different with a daughter. You have to kind of get the matching bed sheets with the roommate and kind of organize all that. So that seems to be the issue facing us today. On a professional note, I'm going to piggyback on Ken and, and say that uh, the work of this paper and the one forthcoming is going to be a, a nice advance for the field. And I'm glad to be a part of that work. I can't touch any of these professionals. I'm so not even going to try, except to say that the response to the 20,000 download podcast has really been been fun. A lot, a lot of letters, a lot of people sending jokes and comments, and nobody 
40 cent champagne yet, but I didn't think that was actually going to happen. So it's been fine. Personally, I got to see our godson and his wife and their kids who I hadn't seen for two years in D.C. last weekend, which was great. The kids are seven and four and they're wonderful. And for sports geeks, I got to go to a th- what should have been a thoroughly meaningless baseball game yesterday between the Cubs and the Washington Nationals, except that it wound up having one guy hit three homers, one guy and the other team hit two homers. The second homer was a walk-off at the ninth inning. And because my godson managed to get a seat right behind the dugout, when you catch it on ESPN, you actually see Corey turning around to me in the background as the guy hits the ball going, that's gone. So he was really jazzed about that. He thought ESPN could be like a life experience for him. So I'm glad to let him have it. And with that, we go on. Ken, I think I'm just going to ask you to start by talking about how did this initiative come about? And then from there, we'll wind up going to what's in it. Well, number one, thanks, Roger, for giving attention to the work we've done with Steve and others. I have to do a minor correction that the initiative really was by the American Gastroenterology Association, and the credit should go to Fasiha Kanwal in Houston. So she's the one who invited me and as an endocrinologist and Jay Shubrook as a primary care doctor saying, hey, we have, our fields are not working together, and this is a complicated disease which belongs to hepatology, but that working with other fields can maybe cover the full spectrum of the disease, including diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and so forth. So why don't we try to bring the fields together and see if we can come up with some strategy aimed not so much for hepatologists that have been working hard on this, but more for non-hepatologists that that are interested but really don't know exactly what to do. We we said, well, let's put together all the stakeholders in a meeting and let's see what's what's known. This was a year ago. Uh, we got all together, the 32 professionals, virtually uh, in the midst of COVID. And we talk about natural history of the disease, then how to diagnose and then how to treat it with what we have and talked about future agents. Steve gave a great talk and many others. So we tried to say, this is the state of the art. Let's just, just say, hey, let's send a summary of this to everybody and let's put this call into non-hepatology journals too. So I invited the president of the ADA, Bob Eckel, president of ACE, which is the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, Sandra Weber. We had representation from the Endocrine Society and Jay Shubrook gathered the primary care societies and as, as well as the liver groups. And we all came up with this white paper that also did an interesting questionnaire among 751 professionals, both from the liver field and endocrine and primary care, showing the gaps that we already, uh, that I know Steve knows pretty well because he works across different spectrums of professionals. Right, Steve? I mean... uh, Yeah, absolutely. This was critical to get everybody together and address the issues and begin to formulate some sort of consensus document where we could provide for our folks on the front lines a way to begin to evaluate these people to identify the at-risk patients. It's amazing how, A, little knowledge there is about this when you step away from the the center of uh, the focus. So if you you step away from Ken Cousy and one or two other endocrinologists, you step away from a few key primary care doctors and even maybe a slightly larger number of GI docs, you you very quickly lose an understanding of how big this problem really is. And so part of this was, hey, identifying what are the key hot button issues in endocrinology and in primary care and in GI 
that seem to be hurdles or areas where we can try to knock those down and reach consensus and get something out there. That was an eye-opener for a lot of us and was really the nidus for putting this document together. Would you agree with that, Ken? Absolutely. The effort was not to repeat what is known from the Liver Society guidelines and so forth. It was more of say, hey, we have a problem. And again, the algorithm proposed is not nothing that's gunpowder. I mean, it's just something that the field has been doing, but not in a systematic manner. And and this is really important because I just came from clinic, a diabetes clinic. Two of the patients that I checked out with, it's a teaching clinic with fellows, both had elevated liver enzymes. One since 2011, as I can see from electronic medical records, the first time we saw him in clinic and we did a fiber scanning clinic and both have reading that's in the range of cirrhosis. So they're going to see the liver doctor. But this person could have been probably diagnosed years ago with more benefit than today, but there's still things we can do. So Tony, how do you, when you hear that, how does that strike you? That strikes me as being right on. From my perspective, someone who's been there on the patient side, that that knowledge gap is really something that affected me. Kind of my dream is that the patient becomes the one who drives the doctor to towards the diagnosis, you know, so that they're more aware of the importance of the liver and what the risk factors are for liver disease. And they approach a doctor and say, hey, I need to be tested for this, or can we talk about liver disease? Just this morning, I saw something on the internet about an article that was published in Hepatology Communications that said that only six out of 100 people who have NAFLD know they have it. That's where a lot of my focus is, trying to reach the people like that. And I was one of them. That knowledge gap certainly needs to be eliminated. Yeah, and, and Tony, I'll just add to that. The publication that we had just a couple months ago online on our prevalence paper, looking at asymptomatic people presenting for colon cancer screening, one of the reasons, like, to be excluded was if you had a history of liver disease. So everybody that signed consent thought their livers were completely healthy, nothing wrong with them. Do a PDFF, 38% of them have fatty liver. And you do a liver biopsy, 14% of them have NASH. And even around 6% had advanced liver disease. So just taking that smallest number, 6% of the people that walked in our door for colon cancer screening had moderate to advanced fibrosis, but thought their livers were completely healthy. Can I expand on that, Steve? That is probably the best paper in the field at this time. We did a very simple study, much simpler, looking just at people with diabetes. And again, if they had had a fiber scan, of course, a biopsy, or told that they had a fatty liver, they were excluded. So these were people we collected. We had more, but at the time when we published 561 patients with diabetes, just coming for the regular checkup, a third to the endocrinologist, another third to family medicine, the last third to general medicine. And again, the fiber scan has its caveats, but plus minus uh, some 20% error, about 15% had moderate to advanced fibrosis. One in six had a degree of liver disease that deserved further evaluation. And even if it was 10% after you did all additional workup, that means you have one in 10 people with near cirrhosis that could be preventable. So no wonder that it's soon to be, it's the most rapidly growing indication for liver transplant 
transplantation and will probably surpass hepatitis C. The, the main point, Roger, is I hope the listeners, wherever they are, patients, doctors, we're all patients in a way, just talk to the doc, to their physicians about this. First off, this is exciting. Obviously, outside of the startling numbers that are still existing, it's exciting to see all the different societies work together. It's one of our recommendations within our U.S. NASH Action Plan, but more specifically, kind of looking at, we made a very similar request. We used some of the studies that, that Ken has, has led and, and has mentioned, made the request to the United States Preventative Services Task Force with many of the same societies signed on in support, including Tony's NASH Knowledge and AGA and the Endocrine Society, essentially asking USPSTF to really make the recommendation that patients with diabetes also have a conversation about their risk for NASH. And it is critical that we have that conversation because they are the most at risk and the numbers are, are startling and we need to catch these patients earlier because as Ken mentioned, you know, it, it will be the leading cause of transplant. We want to avoid that if possible. So, you know, I think it's going to require continued studies like this simultaneously happening with other efforts, whether it's on the policy side, sending letters to the right federal agencies, working on Capitol Hill, but it's, you know, we're excited to kind of be a part of this movement and be as helpful as possible. There are really two points that are worthy of discussion as a result of this paper. Number one, in my talking with primary care docs and GI docs, the issue in part is we don't have an approved drug. And so so for the GI docs, if there's no approved drug, it's lose weight exercise, go back and see your primary care doctor. I really don't have time to manage that. And so the primary care doctor gets frustrated because they send a consult forward after doing this workup and it comes right back to them with the same recommendations they've already told the patient. The second one is we can go and talk to these primary care docs and endocrine docs and cardiologists and OBGYN docs and even podiatrists and tell them this is a problem and this is how you work it up. But there has never been a consensus on how to do that. Some people are using ELF. Some people use MRI. Some people use FibroScan. Some people use Fib4, NAFLD fibrosis score, FibroSure, LiverFast. There's lots of different algorithms out there and they're all fine in their own right. But the nice thing about what we have here in this call to action is a unified way of saying this is what consensus documentation looks like based on the data that's been presented and based on expert opinion and analysis of that data, we've come up with something that's very simple, very pragmatic, and very usable as a frontline tool. And oh, by the way, here's the reference for that if you want to go look at it. And it doesn't mean that's the way it has to be. It's not an absolute. What we do know is that two tests are better than one. And in reducing the indeterminate zone of these tests and improving the precision and the accuracy and the positive predictive value. That's what this this algorithm gives you, if you will. But at the end of the day, speaking to Tony and patient advocacy, it it, it it will always help if patients come forward and ask their doctor, tell me about fatty liver disease and force the doc to then have a conversation with the patient. And if they've ignored it or not focused on it because patients simply haven't asked them about it, now they'll have to go look at it. And oh, by the way, here's a great article just published in multiple journals that gives them that roadmap on how to do it. First of all, I think all this is fantastic. One of the things we were talking about with with Jeff Lazarus and Yorn last week was the idea that if you activate patients and the only place they go is the hepatologist, the hepatologist won't have time to deal with it. So that really it's almost that you've got to come at this from, from at least two directions, which is patient motivation is important. 
but educating physicians beyond the hepatology community to actually know what to do and why it matters to do it is also important because otherwise you're simply not going to have enough uh, physicians or enough healthcare providers to treat the patients that are going to emerge. So that's, I think, really exciting. My question, I guess, is what do we think it will take, what do you think it will take, Ken, Stephen, Tony, different perspective, to actually get a significant portion of, say, the primary care community or some of the other specialty communities to the place where they will be activated, where they'll be responsive to patients in the way that Tony wants them to, or where they step up on their own and they say, gee, we need to look at you more seriously. What do you think it'll take us to get there? Well, I'll do a first shot at it. So number one is to understand that this is something really important. I still get, I don't want to bash my peers in the technologists or, or, or even primary care, but they still say, I've never seen somebody with cirrhosis in my clinic. I'm sure, Steve, I've heard that. And when you put a fiber scan, a diagnostics test in the clinic, all of a sudden you see, wow, oh yeah, this is real. It's like we didn't have any osteoporosis until we used bone densitometers and it is out there. Or even diabetic nephropathy, if you don't measure it and you don't know until once they're in dialysis. And then when they get really sick, they go to see Stephen, to the hospital and back home. They don't see anybody else after that. And I think that has to change and it only will change with this call for awareness. And what is exciting about this call to action is that the American Diabetes officially agreed to do this and Endocrine Society and ACE, the three big players, and it's published simultaneously in Diabetes Care and in the Journal of ACE and in Metabolism, which is another journal. So finally, it's going through the main channels. The second thing is, as Steve probably is thinking of and mentioned, is having treatments that are FDA approved. That is going to be a game changer, any treatment, because because now you are liable of not doing anything. Well, if there's no FDA-approved drug, well, I mean, there's nothing approved. However, I have to say that there are medications that can reverse the inflammation, what you call the steatopatitis, in about half the patients that are pyoglitazone that costs less than $5 a month and semaglutide that also has been approved recently for the management of obesity or vitamin E. These drugs have caveats and plus and minus things that you have to look into. In the questionnaire that we did, and, and it's published in the paper, half of the people know pyoglitazone works, but still don't use it. But only about 20% or less knew that semaglutide could work. And this is six months after a big paper in the New England, and Steve was very active in that study too. So I think education on both ends, patients and clinicians connecting knowledge with action, is, is it takes time. Roger, remember the cholesterol campaigns started very slow despite the fact that statins were coming out. So all these things take time, but hopefully with media, better use of media, this is going to be faster than in the past. Well, you know, in a, in a little bit of an analogy, and I might take some heat for this, look at the, the COVID vaccination campaign. It takes time to get the word out and to overcome people's concerns, fears, whatever reason they've got. And just because there's one New England Journal paper published on semaglutide in the setting of NASH, it doesn't mean it suddenly overnight becomes the gold standard or, or ubiquitous in people's pathways and the way they manage patients. Pyoglitazone, obviously, uh, Ken, you and I have been talking about that since the early 2000s. And of course, you're... 2006, Steve. We've been 15 years on this. <laughs> that's when the paper came out, but we were working on it long before that, right? Yeah, uh, that's true. So I really honestly believe we have come at this in stovepipes. We've come at this in fractured, well-intentioned ways of trying to deliver the message, 
but it's never really gained the kind of traction and momentum that it needs. And I think and I hope that with where we are in drug development, where we are with patient advocacy groups beginning to work on that groundswell, a movement takes really there's one person that starts it and when the second person validates the movement, things actually begin to happen. So we see that happening. Even today, we have two patient advocacy groups on our podcast, and there are more around the world. They're beginning to come together and drive the message to the patients. We have drug development that's so close to being toward the finish line. And now we've got kind of a collective mindset coming together across multiple different specialties delivering this call to action. We're just living in the, the moment of a new galaxy forming. It's hard to say what it's going to look like, but it's coming together and it's going to be terrific at the end. We'll deliver that message and we'll provide care to patients that need it. As you mentioned, Ken, there is therapy out there right now. It is limited in some of our guidance document to diagnose steatohepatitis. So we've got to kind of make that diagnosis if we want to follow the guidelines. But it's just finding those patients and encouraging patients to come forward and say, look, test me. Do I have this disease? And then primary care or endocrine or GI to say, okay, what's the best way to do that? And then follow an algorithm that involves two different testing strategies, either an imaging study followed by a blood-based biomarker, two biomarkers of some sort to really get at this. And the beauty of all of these test is their negative predictive value. And that's the 80% solution, right? If we can exclude those that don't need further workup, that's where our tests are best utilized. It's where do we pigeonhole those people if one test is abnormal? Well, then we need to go prove it with another test and then get those people on to care that they deserve. Hopefully I don't get cut off again, but I couldn't agree more, Stephen. You know, what I was saying right before I dropped was that it is going to take this collective effort. The amazing studies that Ken and, and all the other societies have come together and produced, we've been using some of that data in our outreach efforts to Capitol Hill. I mentioned earlier, you know, we sent a letter with many of those same societies, even highlighting some of Ken's research in that letter to the United States Preventative Services Task Force and advocating that for all patients with diabetes. There should be a conversation about NASH, as Steve was just mentioning, you know, getting the patients the time to tell their story, but pairing that with the data and the studies. We can have the collective effort of the community. It's exciting that things like this are starting to come out. Studies, you know, it was part of our recommendations from our U.S. NASH Action Plan. We're excited to see it come forward. I mean, it's going to take more, though. I mean, obviously, as Stephen mentioned, advocacy, changing policy, developing full public health plans and programs, it, it, it takes time. But hopefully, with a collective effort, research, backing the patient stories, and obviously, advocacy organizations like Tony's and GLI, and then others, you know, medical societies and more working together, we'll be able to kind of move the needle on this. If I could just touch on one point. One thing Ken said earlier was that, you know, there's a lot of PCPs that have haven't seen other patients progress to cirrhosis from fatty liver. As these PCPs see that happening, in my case, my PCP had not seen that happen. He saw it happen with me, and now he takes a much more aggressive role in counseling patients. Now, that's kind of a one-by-one -one approach, which could take forever. That's a factor at play as well. As more doctors see PCPs in particular, see this happening with their patients, it's going to drive greater interest as well. Yeah, Tony, you know what I call that? There's a phrase for that. It's heart transformation 
medication leads to behavioral modification. And that goes for doctors as well as it does patients. And that's anecdotal. Every single doctor that you talk to, Ken and I included, may not change our practice based on one double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial, but we dang sure will based on one single anecdotal experience. True. So when Tony turns his experience into that fantastic video that they did and gets it played on public television and places and things like that, do doctors who watch that, does that aid the process of transformation? Is that kind of quasi-anecdotal or is that one step removed from what most people will consider real in the physician community, do you think? Well, I think it plays a big role, but again, tied with good science and with things to do. I mean, with the work we did with Steve and published in 2006, also in the New England and followed by Pivens in 2010 and some other work we've done, it breaks my heart when I see a patient like I saw just an hour ago because that person had diabetes. And my hope is that the medications for diabetes can be used to treat diabetes, but at the same time hit a second endpoint like NASH. If this person would have taken pioglitazone in 2011, this person wouldn't be today with cirrhosis. And again, it's a cheap medication. And again, the typical thing that I hear, well, it causes some weight gain, two, three kilos of weight gain. And again, I ask people, would you rather have cirrhosis or or gain weight, which is preventable with intensive lifestyle. Moreover, now with semaglutide, you can induce weight loss in that combination. So again, these are the things that, that a story like Tony mentions could be paired with the evidence to really change medical practice. I totally track, Ken. The, idea, the statement that didn't have to happen is really powerful. I, I agree completely. Yeah, and, and that statement should go to Capitol Hill, right? Andrew. So the minute that gets incorporated into the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force guidelines, becomes a HEDIS measure, that's where we begin to actually drive change. Again, it's multi-pronged, multi-focused. You know, there's lots of different ways that need to be gotten after. And and it, it's going to be multifaceted. It's going to be what we're doing on Capitol Hill. It's going to be the patient, direct patient education. And it's going to be publications like what, what Ken uh, has pioneered with others. So so let me let me toss one out to Andrew. Andrew, Jeff Lazarus had this really, I thought, interesting thought last week, and it was when Stephen said he just that he triggered it, which is Lazarus's comment is any patient picked up at F2 or F3, forget cirrhosis, picked up at F2 or F3 for the first time, that should be called a late diagnosis, and that should be a kept statistic, which I loved because it was the first key performance indicator I had heard that you could very simply measure and tell a health system, hey, you guys are getting this wrong. Well, that's kind of been one of the ideas we were hoping to see change when we added some of the ICD. 10 codes made that push to get now early versus advanced hepatic fibrosis coding put in the system. Going forward, it will be vital for us to have clarification on what stage a patient is in, and we can then use the different populations as we make our point. I mean, one thing we have to keep in mind is Capitol Hill, they sometimes want the big numbers, but they also want to know that it's a addressable problem. And knowing that if you have a certain population, and that's why we've been trying to at least get the conversation happening with the most at risk for now, but also kind of thinking of the entire spectrum as well. But, you know, really just helping them see clearly that this is an addressable problem right now. Something needs to be done. And and I want to kind of briefly mention too, kind of going back to a point that was just mentioned by both Stephen and, and Ken, some of the most successful meetings that we have had on Capitol Hill have when you've been able to have the doctor, whether it's the hepatologist, endocrinologist, gastroenterologist, or whoever, and a patient in the room together talking to legislators. And having that that 
clinician who's able to provide their experiences paired with the research, the data, with the lived experiences of the patient is extremely impactful. That's what's most exciting when you see research like this coming out with many different societies joined in support, including patient advocacy organizations, but also letters like we have led and other initiatives that we have worked on that have been with collective, because that is going to be so important, having that patient side of the table and the clinician side of the table there together, kind of approaching it from two different angles, making the point and hitting them with the the most important data and valuable information. Yeah, I agree with that yeah, very much, Andrew. Our experience has been that the story really carries a lot of weight. It's one thing to you know, rattle off some statistics to a person, but they relate much more to the story, an individual story. And that, that's one of the things we try to do. Well, Andrew, expanding a little bit on what you said, there's a blueprint for this in the diabetes field. I work at the VA and again, we get evaluated on whether you missed or not visit to the eye doctor, or you didn't measure in the urine protein, if you didn't check blood pressure, A1Cs. I think the, the blue, the easiest path is because people with type 2 diabetes are at greater risk and there are diabetes medications that can treat both, that that would be where I would emphasize the screening. The, the screening that we propose to Steve in the paper is not very expensive. It's not perfect. But even the two-tier test between the FIB4 and some imaging with elastography is not prohibitively expensive. It's not more expensive than an eye exam. It's cheaper or a protein urine test. And if you're negative, well, then maybe you you can not, you don't have to do it every every year, even every other year or every third year, it's still debatable. But that blueprint of mandatory testing will go a long way because in the diabetes field now, we don't choose the drugs based on their A1C reducing capacity, but on their complications. So some medications can reduce heart failure like SGLT2 inhibitors. Others can promote weight loss. So pyoglitazone could be reserved for those people with diabetes who have NASH or, or a suggestion of advanced fibrosis without needing to do a biopsy. You'll lower their A1C and by the way, may do some good for their liver. Yeah, I see a lot of similarities between, I mean, in some ways we're almost with NASH, we're just kind of five years behind where diabetes advocacy is. And we're trying to, to use some of those techniques to kind of move the field forward on the advocacy side of things. And that especially includes, of course, partnering with Endocrine Society, AGA, and, and ACE. But also, you know, we look forward to part, partnering with ADA more uh, as we go forward, because having both the kind of patient sides of, of this of the same coin are valuable here. There's a lot of lessons to be learned there. And we've been trying to kind of take that guidance as we move forward. And on the screening point specifically, that's one thing where we hope we're, with our Beyond the Biopsy initiative, really stressing that there are tools available now that can be used instead of biopsy. And biopsy, you know, as we well know, naturally is a barrier for a variety of reasons. So that, you know, obviously presents its own set of challenges and getting us past that is, is vital as well. So we look forward to kind of working collectively to do that also. Let me just throw a flare into this thing for a sec, which is that, Andrew, I get the point that goes, we might be five years behind diabetes on the advocacy side. But one of the things that really struck me when I saw the survey numbers was the lack of any significant difference between endos and primary care in terms of what they knew right, wrong, or indifferent about this disease. Now, I've also been told otherwise that endos don't order NASH tests in any discernible difference from other elements of the population that should know any more about that. So I, I think that on the advocacy side, we might do fine. My question to Steve and, and Ken, I guess more, would be, and Ken, I don't mean to pick on endocrinologists. You're, you're, you're everybody's hero in, the, in this world. Hey, let me, let me say one thing about endocrinologists. I did a 
survey of my own. I have a registry here in Texas and we mine the registry and we go out to endocrine clinics and do fiber scans. We go to GI clinics and do fiber scans. I was blown away when we were looking at data entry for baseline LFTs. GI docs, 25% of the time only had LFTs. Endocrine, 75% of their patients had LFT checks. I don't know if it's because of statin use or what it was, Ken, but you guys do a whole lot better job of at least ordering liver function tests or liver chemistry tests uh, compared to my own GI colleagues. So kudos to you for that. Amen. But then, Stephen, so the flip side is I'm also told that there's no meaningful relationship in terms of people who look at order patterns between what comes out of those LFTs and whether any other NASH tests like FIB4s or anything get ordered. So I think they're doing a great job on liver enzymes. Now you just got to translate. You got to take it one more step, really. Well, you're absolutely right. My point was, or the, the point I was wanting to expand on that is, liver is important to endocrinologists, or you wouldn't be ordering liver chemistry tests. It's not, it's not just part of a comprehensive panel where you're checking the cholesterol. I mean, these were tests that had to be ordered by the endocrinologist separate, liver chemistry tests, liver function tests. And so there is a sense that, that the liver is there and there's a test that you can use to measure whether it's irritated or inflamed. It, we know it's not 100% accurate. We know you can have fatty liver and have completely normal liver enzymes. That You can have wildly abnormal liver enzymes and really not a lot going on if you do a liver biopsy. And we know there's inherent limitations on that. But the point is endocrinologists are aware of liver disease. Now, I think it should be relatively easy to take that next step and say, let's translate that into a, let's look at the liver chemistry test and let's do something with those when they're abnormal. Ken, I'd love to, <laughs> love to hear your thoughts on that. I, I've been giving this a lot of thought for a long time. So they are, and they look at it, I think in great sense because of statin use and some, but they also want to make sure that they don't have very elevated liver enzyme, which would immediately trigger a consult to you guys. My, in part also because the ADA has said that if liver enzymes are elevated, again, with this very high cutoff of 40, which would be like saying you have diabetes with an A1C of seven and a half, has triggered that. What I see uh, a disconnect is that in general, unless liver enzymes are clearly elevated, it doesn't trigger much action. Second is I think most of my peers have a very basic knowledge of liver enzymes or NASH and do not have the concept that you can have significant disease with liver enzymes below 40. And I would have to, I have many friends in the ADA, but I would have to blame a little bit the ADA that has just recommended screening if your liver enzymes are above 40 or if you have steatosis, which we usually don't measure. So in the end, the vast majority doesn't get tested. In our studies of Steve and ours, a minority of patients, I think maybe 20 or 30% had liver enzyme above this very high cutoff. So I think the ADA is going to have to step it forward, even as we don't have 10-year data on outcomes and natural history. Just take the risk of doing this very inexpensive testing once a year for everybody with type 2 diabetes and learn what good comes out of that, that I think will be very, very critical. I think 10% of the people will have a drastic change in their management based on those results. Well, Ken, we're, we're happy to help ADA on that 
that mission. Tony and I, GLI and Nash Knowledge are happy to work collaboratively with ADA to update their guidelines and make things make sure that happens. Yeah, I'm, I'm listening. I'm thinking I'm exactly right, Andrew. One guideline changes the world, right? One one guideline from a reputable organization changes the world on this. Well, it certainly gets the ball rolling. I'm not sure it's going to change the world, but it, it'll get the ball rolling. No, I I'll think... take Ken's definition. It changes it slowly, Stephen. It's not going to change it overnight, but it moves the momentum in a whole different direction. I agree with that. We, we hope that this paper, to be honest, it doesn't say anything that Steve or any in this podcast didn't know. We hope it will make people who are more focused on other problems think more in a liver-centric fashion. I remember when I was doing my endocrine training, educating primary cares about microbuminuria. I remember, Roger, you may know this. Uh, you're probably, we're in the same boat here. So so I think these things did, can change. Did they have insulin back then, Ken? <laughs> Uh, it had just come out. It had just come out. You had to go to Toronto to get it this season. <laughs> but that's a good point. But to be honest, I mean, never before in the past 20 years we've worked in this, has there been such a confluence of different angles and treatments, interest in diagnosis, big pharma, people knowing. And the are very interested, but there's a little bit of a disconnect on what to do about it. That That's where the really the problem lies, I think. Right. I would agree. So, Tony, what should we do about it from where you sit? Well, interestingly enough, I've been pulling with, with my endocrinologist tomorrow morning. So I may ask her what, you know, what her view on... on harass him. Harass him. Make him. Make him work <laughs> a little bit harder because people always say, well, we can't take care of another complication. We're busy enough. There are big structural problems. This healthcare of 20-minute visits just doesn't work. And there has to be better retribution for the work of clinicians from pediatricians to endocrinologists and clinicians in general. But beyond those structural changes, that doesn't mean that we can't do a little bit more to prevent cirrhosis. Yeah, and one of the things that we've been working on, I've been invited by a local diabetes group to be an exhibitor at a conference they're having here locally in Pittsburgh. And I'll be there to talk to the endocrinologist about liver disease and the relationship with diabetes. So we have to keep hammering away at that. This isn't something that stands alone off by itself. A lot of talk about diabetes and a lot of talk about obesity, but you just don't hear, you know, Roger, you know, I've heard you, heard you before say the liver is an organ, you know, it's a Roddy Dangerfield of, of our organs. And, uh, you know, and that that is true. Um, and, you know, I just think in, we just need to keep hammering away at those people who come in contact with people who might be at risk for liver disease. Yeah, Andrew, go ahead. You look like you have something, something in mind. Well, I mean, I just, I, I couldn't agree more with what Tony is saying. And I think really the key as we go forward, I think this is a point that has been stressed on, on this podcast before, but, but education and education, whether that's educating patients to have a conversation with their clinicians or educating clinicians that are outside of hepatology about the risks of NASH. And it's going to require the advocacy community working there, that side, obviously patient advocacy organizations, but also it's going to require medical societies to acknowledge the problem as well, whether that's through guideline changes and more. But I think, you know, there there is at least a growing acknowledgement now that there is a real problem. There is at least for those that know, like all of us on today's podcast, that there are options available and it's just kind of getting the work 
word out more now and then empowering those, whether it's clinicians or patients, to then share with others, whether that's on Capitol Hill or with their peers, the, the available options as well. Okay, so we're getting towards the end of Ken's hour. Okay, so I want to go to a final question, let him answer first, then if he has to leave, he has to leave, right? I wonder what you think the tipping points we can control today are. Obviously, first of the next generation of NASH drugs will be a major tipping point because it'll put a drug in the market and it'll put a lot of investment behind education. But before we get there, because that might be another two years, right? Year and a half, two years. Before we get there, what are the tipping points that we can shape in the interim? What can we do to meaningfully change the equation, speed the momentum? Well, again, it's not a single thing as been said by, by the others here. But if I had to choose before we have a drug that will take still at least a couple of years is A, patient education, patient learning. Oh, well, I may have a problem. I'm going to ask my doctor. B, society's getting actively involved and our little contribution with this article attempted to do that. But here and even in the international arena, I also helped a little bit with what Lazarus was doing. So all this interconnection, increased awareness, it, it's just like the campaigns that cut down smoking and high cholesterol. It's a little bit at every level. But if I had to choose in the short term, patient education, clinician education, which many times is helped through the societies. And then what Andrew and Tony are doing, working from the roots and working in legislation to bring this to to a level that it's something important. And I would add to that, that a podcast like this never existed prior to the pandemic. And now this is a voice to what, 20,000 downloads? So far, 21 now. Yeah. A, a publication like just came out, brought together everybody you see here on the podcast. And now we discuss that. And a physician or a patient may not have recognized that that manuscript came out, but they did listen to the podcast. And now they'll want to go learn more about it. So again, to your point, Ken, every different media avenue to deliver this message is important, whether it's in print, whether it's on a podcast, whether it's in person, whether it's on Capitol Hill or in our clinics. We need to pound the same message and keep it simple, stupid. Tony, go ahead. Our focus talking about, about short term. I think we're trying to do some things in the short term that have a long term impact. For example, you know, we think the issue, the major issue with this lack of awareness is that people grow up without knowing anything about their liver and how important it is and how to keep it healthy. That was certainly my case and every, everyone I talked to. So we've, we've actually developed lesson plans to be used in the education system to teach kids the importance of the liver. We've also developed some animated videos to teach younger children about how important their liver is and how they can, can take care of it. So we're trying to plant a lot of seeds that hopefully will bear fruit. And it may take a while, and I'm, I'm 75 years old, so hopefully it doesn't take too long. Just kind of plugging away every, every day at um, just doing whatever we can do to raise awareness. The rousing British cheering you heard in the background was the voice of Louise Campbell listening to this later and going, yeah, that's exactly right. Because she would have been all over that, all over that, had she been here today. Go ahead, Andrew. I'll keep it shorter, but I couldn't agree more with that everything that's been said, you know, I echo all the points that have been said. I think the one other thing that is an immediate available option to all of us, and it's one of the things that this podcast today has done, but it's just kind of the building of bridges across societies, across advocacy organizations. There doesn't need to be a sense of ownership to Nash. It doesn't need to fall into one category. We can think outside of just, but we need to think outside of just the liver. We need to think of liver health overall. And as Stephen mentioned earlier, that groundswell, you know, to build that, it has to be a full health community effort. We've seen the beginning 
signs of that, you know, whether that's through the letters we send, our U.S. National Action Plan, the article that, that Ken is, has led, this podcast and more, it's happening, but we just need to keep doing that and keep getting everyone at the table. So, Andrew, I don't remember, are you are you in the middle of getting your MBA or do you have your MBA? I'm in the middle of getting it right now, at night. When, you, when you're done, it will break a record because we will have two MBAs on this podcast at the same time. And the reason I mention that is that one of the things they teach you in B-School, at least they taught me in B-School, is that people do what's inspected, not what's expected. So when I talk about things like heat measures and KPIs and guidelines and pathways, it is so critical for people to be evaluated based on whether they're doing the right thing once we've taught them what the right thing is to do. And I'm kind of looking you in the eye when I say that because when we talk about preventive task force, that's exactly where I go. We need that idea, for example, of late diagnoses and maybe one or two other things that we can turn into real simple metrics that we can persuade everybody that the cost effectiveness is there to measure today and the tools are there to manage today. If I have to do one thing before drugs show up, I think that's the one that is going to take more focused energy, but would have great value. Not that the education isn't important. It is not that everything we're doing isn't important. It is, but we're going to pay it off when people metricate it. That'd be my two cents. That's because I have an MBA. When you finish with your MBA, come on back and we'll have this conversation about whether you're seeing it the same way. All right. So anybody have anything to add? Okay. We're two minutes late for Ken's meeting. Ken, go ahead. Don't worry. I can be two minutes late with a Zoom. Nobody knows really if you're there or not on time. So those are little silver linings. We, that's a little perk of being the boss. You know, Ken, Ken runs the show. So he can be late. No, no. This is the chairman of medicine. So if I get fired, Roger, I'm going to be looking for a job on this podcast. Okay. You but, know, and you can make the same money that Stephen and I have been making all along, which will not exactly even get you a hot dog. But Ken, you can, you're always welcome back in Texas. I know. Thank you. <laughs> but the last thing I would say, just thinking in the audience, we talked about cirrhosis. and But to be honest, it's a very bright time if you have NASH. There are new drugs coming. There are medications you can take now. We know a lot more how lifestyle works. The fact that the ADA and other endocrine societies supported this initiative is saying that there's a sea change coming. So it's it's a great time. We should all keep hope that nobody in the future will will die from cirrhosis with what we with where the field is heading. So thank you, Roger, for bringing to the attention of the public this paper. Thanks, Steve, for your hard work. And I learned so much from Andrew and Tony. This has been really a fantastic fantastic podcast. Thank you, Ken. And th thanks, everybody, for joining us. And Ken, congratulations on the work you and your colleagues and Stephen have done putting this together. Andrew, I just get so excited every time you show up because you guys are doing such amazing things. And Tony, same is true of you as well. We will be back next week. We have a couple of options for next week. I'm not sure which one we're going to take, but I think there's a decent chance we're going to go in a completely different direction and talk about drug mechanisms of action. More on that later. At any rate, let me let you gents go, and then I will come back and do the business portion after everybody's left. Um, have a Ken, again, thank you, everybody. Andrew, thank Thanks for coming at the last minute. Enjoy, y'all. Bye-bye now. As we shift into today's business section, we are still in the slower days of summer. Still, we have a couple of interesting items to report. Next week, a peak podcast experience on Surfing Nash. Next week's episode is something special. Over time, I've come to believe that the best academics and the smartest people are always playing a game of conceptual speed chess. Fast moves, seeing five minutes ahead, thinking conceptual and multiple dimensions at the same time. I love that stuff, even if sometimes it gives me a headache. Some of our best episodes, the FDA webcast or some of our convention episodes, have featured this kind of fast, free-floating interplay. Next week, we're honored to have Dr. Arun Sanyal, who Stephen describes, not inaccurately, as the King of Nash, which goes along with Mazanur in describing Stephen as the Duke of Nash drugs, to discuss the issue 
issue of fibroblast growth factors, better known as FGFs. The differences between FGF19 and FGF21 in terms of mechanism of action, why not all FGF1 agents are alike, what makes this class so special, and what their future might be. You know the way you have to watch some movies or read some book chapters a few times to get the full emotional and story impact? I've already listened to this episode twice. I expect to listen at least three or four more times to get full episode out of it. So don't miss this episode, whatever you do. We need your feedback. So be on the lookout for questionnaires. We have two sets of issues on which we need your input. First, general directions and major themes for episodes of the podcast over the next few months, areas for general focus, some specific subjects you want to be certain we cover. Second, steps we should take to make live audience as easy as possible for people to attend as we get ready to make it a permanent feature of the podcast. Over the next couple of weeks, I will create separate questionnaires on each topic and post them online. We will have a random drawing among those who answer with two very cool podcast-related prizes. Check our LinkedIn posts and emails for more information. Louise Campbell in a different role. As you've heard already, Louise had a last-minute personal issue and could not attend the recording session for episode 41. It is, however, a topic near and dear to her interest at heart. So, she and I recorded a separate interview after she read the transcript. We are delivering this as episode 41.1 by end of the day Friday, and we will include relevant sections in the three weekend conversations, which we will post as 41.2, 41.3, and 41.4. Also, I will have questions about the entire idea of side interviews in the two questionnaires I plan to deliver in the next few weeks. 20,000 downloads was so yesterday. This week, we passed 22,000 total Buzzsprout downloads. Last summer, weekly downloads were far lighter than either the late spring or early fall, so we are delighted so many of you are listening through this summer. And with that, I want to thank Ken and Steven for being so engaged in this multidisciplinary effort and for sharing their thoughts with us, and to Tony and Andrew, who stepped in at the last minute when Louise became unavailable. Also, thanks to Mike for our sound, Eric for our social, and Polly for his usual rush support. We will post the episode I described with Dr. Sanyal on August 18th, and as I said before, it's really special. Don't miss it. Until then... Stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website.